Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to talk again about the Kingdom of God. And uh, I just sent out uh, a notice uh, to a lot of the people on the network uh, as to the topic of what we're going to talk about. I, uh, I'm on a number of groups on uh, Facebook, and uh, somebody was promoting an idea that he thought was uh, the only workable idea of creating an anarchy, one that is consistent with Scripture. Now, anarchy, of course, most people are going to think anarchy, that's where there's chaos and people are fighting against the government and blowing people up. But that's not actually what anarchy is. It means a government without rulers. It may be a government with leaders, but not rulers. People are not ruling one over the other. Now, that's actually what Christ was appointing when he appointed the kingdom of God because he said you're not to be like the governments of the Gentiles, the other nations, the princes of other nations who exercise authority one over the other. So that means you're not to rule one over the other. He actually uses the word arche, talking about these rulers. And you're not to be rulers one over the other. Because the church is a different kind of government. They called out his ministers, his disciples, were called out to be the ministers of a kingdom that he was going to appoint after he took it away from the Pharisees. And, of course, he took it away in a very clever way. He got them to say, we have no king but Caesar. And so they rejected the kingdom. That That's like people saying, what is David to us and going back to their own homes? I, I've explained this so many times in when you see in First Samuel 8, where the people reject God, that's what it says, they reject God and decide to have a ruler who can exercise authority one over the other. They wanted them to have a limited authority, and there's talk in the Bible way back in Deuteronomy about limiting a king, a ruler, someone who is able to exercise that authority, a chief executive officer, a, a imperator which means commander-in-chief. If you're going to have something like that, you want to create a constitution that's going to limit his powers. And they give you a list of five things in Deuteronomy to write down and read to him every day to limit his powers over the people. Because you don't want him to have too much power. If he has too much power, he will be corrupted by that power because power corrupts. And we see that with Saul. That's what happened. Saul became corrupt and did a foolish thing and exercised a power to force an offering of the people, which means to tax them. You see, Israel had gotten by for 400 years without taxes because it was an anarchy, had no rulers. But in order to have no rulers, that means the state, capital S-T-A-T-E, cannot exercise authority one over the other. So, where does the state get its power? Where does the state get its authority to exercise that authority over the people? The people give it to the state. I mean, if the state just comes in like a pirate, when you get enough power together, you can throw them off. But if the state comes in because you 
do some particular deeds or acts or agreement or consent or something to give it power that you once had. Now the state, S small s, S-T-A-T-E, which used to rest with you, which was your status as a free man in nature, now rests with the government you create. It now has your power of choice. It can now choose for you. And of course, Nimrod could choose for the people. Pharaoh could choose for the people. Uh, Caesar could choose for the people. Why? Because the people gave power to Pharaoh, Caesar, Nimrod to provide them with benefits, protection, security. And then he had that power. Saul was given power to create security in the nation because they needed somebody to fight their battles for them. And when he went to fight the battle, he needed money, and so he forced an offering of the people. He taxed the people. And Samuel said, You have done this foolish thing, so now your kingdom will not stand. All such kingdoms eventually fail. Unfortunately, they take a lot of people with them when they fail. So, anyway, understanding what's going on. I mean, the book, the Bible, is about government. It's It only mentions religion five times. But it mentions government hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. Good government, bad government. Anarchist government, Republican governments, constitutional republics, democracies. It mentions all these different kinds of governments. It doesn't say democracy, but it says voice of the people. They choose their leader. And that was called a rejection of God. Because they would not have God rule over them. Well, how does God rule over them? He rules over them in their hearts and their minds. So it's absolutely essential if you're not going to have rulers who can exercise authority, as the Greeks would say, arche, these top-down rulers, like Saul became, like Pharaoh became, like Nimrod became, like Caesar became. If you're not going to have those, then the state is going to rest with the individual free man and his family. That's His family is a unit. That's a biological God created unit. I mean, God created us male and females so that we could reproduce. And that reproduction, we call it a family. That's the corporation of God. Two or more people gathered together as if they were one flesh for the particular purpose of recreating society. To giving birth to society. Your children is the society of tomorrow. Because you're going to die. You know, uh, uh, what is it, four score and, <laughs> no, actually it's not four score, three score and ten. Uh, you, you're, that's pretty much your limit. You might go to 90. Uh, I know some people just passed away the other day, 90 some years old. And they, they weren't bossing the family around, but their presence there had an effect on the family. And the choices that they made out of respect for the elderly matriarch of the family. And uh, now we're all sitting on pens and needles wondering what the family is going to decide now that grandma's gone. <laughs> so and it'll be interesting. But it, the point is family is that core group. And it wasn't just 
you know, husband and wife, it was grandfather and grandmother and all their children. That's a family unit. That's the corporation of God. Now, he ended up creating another corporation, which was of people called out. And and those people called out belonged to God. And that was the Levites. We see that with the Levites. And the reality is that same pattern we see with the Levites existed in other cultures to one degree or another. And it was corrupted amongst the Judeans. They're very clear. You can go back to Hasmoneans. You see the corruption coming in there. It actually came and went and went back and forth. If you go all the way back to the time of Cyrus and and different uh, monarchs and stuff like that, the, the Levites were corrupted from time to time. And uh, and then some Levites repented and they reorganized themselves according to the way that they were supposed to be from the beginning. And, uh, you know, actually I was listening to somebody this week who is a Bible scholar. And he's gone through, and uh, not by himself actually, there's about 300 years ago, a guy by the name of John Mill was publishing a Greek text of the New Testament. And he had about a hundred different Greek texts to draw from. And he was noticing discrepancies, you know, that this one was copied a little different than that one. And this one was copied a little different from that one. And a lot of the errors are really minor. You know, they leave out a letter or they transpose a word. They write two words and they put one in front of the other and one. In, but really didn't change the meaning or anything. But he did find some that he thought were significant errors. And so what he did was he printed his, it took him about 30 years to put this together. And he only had about a hundred early Greek texts. And uh, they weren't all that early. They're all copied from whatever the original text was or the Q Gospels or whatever. But uh, because we just don't have the originals. But uh, he noticed that there were a number of errors that were kind of significant could actually affect some doctrine and uh, and were worthy of mentioning. So, at the bottom of every page, he would put in, you know, where some of these incorrect or, you know, what's incorrect. Because this, this manuscript says this and this manuscript says that. So, he gives them both so that the reader can uh, ponder these discrepancies himself and try to figure out which one was the original intent of the original author. And and he fell under a lot of flack for that because, you know, and people pointed out, he says, he's not making changes. He's pointing out that somebody else made changes and he doesn't know which one to put in the book. So he points out that over here in this text, it says this and in this one, it says that. And he leaves it to the reader to decide which one he should go with. Because the people who made these errors have long since dead. This is done in 1700s, 300 years ago, uh, that it was published. And uh, he found 30,000 errors that were worthy of mention. <laughs> so, <laughs> that was, that's quite a few errors. But again... Most of these errors still didn't change anything that we would consider dogma. But there were some that were, you know, rather disconcerting. Whole phrases missing. Uh, uh, sometimes uh, whole stories 
missing. I mean, you can't find the really old texts do not have the story about the the uh, adulterer being uh, adulteress being uh, threatened with stoning. The the older texts don't have that. That was somewhere along the line that entered in. Now, how did it enter in? We we don't really know. Uh, was it from some earlier text that this particular guy had, and so he put it in? Or what? We just don't know. Uh, we don't know a lot of things about the origin of the Bible. But I think it's adequate. But it only works for those people who are led by the Holy Spirit too. Because that's what the Bible even tells you. It's not by flesh and blood you're going to figure this out. You're not going to read the book and know Jesus, know God. It's through revelation that you're going to know God. And that's a gift. He's going to write upon your heart, upon your mind. There's another place where he's talking about, you're going to receive this. This is what he's going to build his church. This is the rock upon which he's going to build his church, is this internal spiritual revelation upon your heart and upon your mind. And that that may come from reading the Bible, or in the process of reading the Bible, that may come, but it actually comes directly from God. That is the rock upon which he's, He's going to build this church. So, But we can look at the Bible. We can look at the text and come up with a lot of conclusions. And, and Wycliffe, when he translated the Bible, you know, and he, he was going to schools and universities at the time, but he was coming to different conclusions about the Bible. And a lot of other people were too. And he said in his introduction, this Bible is for the government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And that's actually in the general prologue to the John Wycliffe Bible translation of 1384. Well, the governments of the world at that time were not really fond of that statement, <laughs> to say the least. They, they weren't fond of some of the uh, observation that translators were making. But really, the Bible is about government. And it's about how we govern ourselves. Do we take the power, the rights, the God-given rights that God has given us, and we give, you know, the right to choose, and we give them to somebody else to decide good and evil for us? I mean, we're not even supposed to decide good and evil. We're supposed to know good and evil because God is writing on our hearts and minds. We're supposed to bear witness to what God is writing on our hearts and mind about what is good and evil. We're not deciding for ourselves with some sort of narcissistic approach to good and evil. We are we are letting God write upon our hearts and our minds. So how do you know if God is writing on your heart and your mind? How do you know if God is writing on the heart and mind of the preacher that you go to on uh, Saturday and, or Sunday? How do you know if he's writing on my heart? Well, you're going to have to look into your own heart. And there's the rub. <laughs> Looking into your own heart, there's some ugly things in there. Anger, resentment, unforgiveness. And you're going to have to deal with that. But in the meantime, we're going to talk about the kingdom. We're going to talk about the form of government recommended by the Bible as a righteous form of government. And of course, righteous depends on what the people in that government decide. And in the government of God, everybody's in the government. In the government of God, I mean, Israel 
How did they fight their battles? A militia. A militia of the people. How did they uh, deal with criminal element in their society that was robbing their neighbor? Well, they had to care about their neighbor as much as they cared about themselves. So when their neighbor ran out and said, Robbery! Robbery! Everybody dropped what they were doing and ran to his aid. Uh, they didn't. They didn't come with their cell phones to get pictures of somebody being raped in the street. They actually came to stop the rape. And there were times when the people got slothful and didn't do this. They didn't love their neighbor. They got complacent. Things were going too good. But there are also times when they elected men who would exercise authority and said, "That's not my job. It's the police's job. It's the government's job. They're supposed to deal with this." But see, in the kingdom of God and in a free society and in a society where you have the archy, the right to rule over your family, and nobody has the right to rule over you and exercise authority and compel you to contribute. Because see, for 400 years, Israel had no taxes. They had tithes, but no taxes. No Levite was kicking in your door to collect your tithe. You got to give to the Levite of your choice And you only had to give to them according to his service. If you didn't think he was serving anybody, you didn't have to give to him. Now, of course, if you're a selfish son of a gun, you won't give anything at all. Whether he's providing a service or not. I mean, I was up here for hours preparing for this show. Going through this plan of Mr. Robert Burke, which he says is uh, uh, the only workable idea for creating this anarchy that is consistent with Scripture. So I went over it, all of his points. I didn't read his book. He constantly is telling everybody they should buy his book, 400-page book. I get people send me books like that and say, read this. I don't really want to read another 400-page book, (laughs) personally. But I will look at what you have to offer. But you got to give me a synopsis. you got to... Break it down. I've been at this for years. I can I can understand what you're saying if you say it somewhat clearly. Give me an outline, and then it'll, I'll know whether I have to read the whole book. Somebody sent me a 400-page book, uh, a particular one. They've actually done it many times. And that's the deal I have with God when I first started. I don't, I don't have money. I live very poor in the poorest county in the state of Oregon. And uh, I live at a very poor end of it. And I live in a very poor fashion. <laughs> That's okay. But uh, I couldn't afford to buy books. And, but I knew he was setting me out to respond to all these different ideas that are floating around out there. And I've been willing to listen. And we'll talk about that and, and why that's important. But somebody sent me this one particular book. I won't mention which one it was. And I thought, oh my gosh, another 400-page book. <laughs> and I just fanned through the book. And I was fanning through the book. All of a sudden, I, my eye caught a page. And I, I, I held on to it and opened it up and looked at that page. And my eyes were drawn to a phrase on the page. And I read that. And uh, it was about theology. And a particular kind of theology that has become very popular in the last five decades. And I read that. And uh, I said, oh, that's important. 
I mean, this book is written by uh, a rebel from the Vatican, a famous rebel from the Vatican. <laughs> and I thought, that's important. And I read that whole paragraph and I in the context. And then I read the paragraph above it and below it. And, and then I started reading that whole chapter. And then I started reading more and more of the book. And that was the only thing in the whole book that was worth reading. <laughs> and not, not that... There weren't some other interesting points in it, but most of it I already knew. But that, that particular comment about this particular type of theology, which I won't mention because it gets us off on another tangent, was important and significant. And I've written about it since. So, But anyway, so we're going to take a look at Mr. Robert Burke's uh, synopsis. And he has some good points, but he strays from scripture and and reasonably so because most people stray from scripture and don't even know they're doing it most modern christians have strayed from scripture but they don't know it because of another amazing thing like i said i was this author who's written books about misquoting jesus and uh and these all these errors that they found in the different greek manuscripts and uh why they're there and how they're there and how they got to be there and what difference they make and all this stuff. And he, this guy's a, a teacher of religious studies at a, a, a Christian college in the, in the Carolinas. And uh, we'll probably do a show on him and talk about him too. But the one of the th- interesting things that he was pointing, actually it wasn't him that pointed it out, somebody else was pointing it out. Uh, but he probably is aware of it too. And I've known it for a long time about the Hebrew language, that all the words in the Hebrew language have a duality of meaning. They have an abstract meaning and they have a concrete meaning. And uh, and once you understand that, it makes it easy to find your easier to find your way to the codex of the Torah. If you don't realize that, which a lot of Pharisees, they kind of shut their mind off to that, then you're going to become confused. Now, if you've already shut your mind off to that and you start reading our material, it will seem confusing because you want words to mean this and they actually mean this and this. <laughs> but the the interesting point is the hieroglyphics of Egypt, the Egyptian language, has the same characteristic. Greek is not usually that way. I mean, if Occasionally you find a kind of a double uh, meaning in, in some of the words. And they're very good at taking two different words and combining them together to create another meaning. But they're a lot more mechanical in their approach to language. This word means this. If they need an abstract meaning, they create a new word with that abstract meaning. They don't have the double meaning. Now, you'll find some double meanings in all languages. But... Uh, uh, if you don't understand that, especially about Hebrew, you're going to miss something. And we're going to show you what you're missing when we return to Keys of the Kingdom. So be right back. <laughs> so.
Okay, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. I just glanced. I hadn't finished going through all my email this morning, so I was quickly running through uh, some of it during the break. And uh, I see somebody asked a question about the commandments, and it's relative to what we're going to be talking about. And uh, what we've just been talking about, too, is language. That if you if you look up in, in the Greek text uh, for uh, the word law, as an example, it's, uh, it's I, I think, almost every time it's translated from a single Greek word. Because the Greeks really didn't have a lot of different words for the word law. And uh, so the word you see is nomos. And, but now the the Romans had several different words that are translated into law. Uh, Lex legis is one, uh, which is one word. That's the 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 subjective and ablative cases. Uh, Lex legis are the two different versions, and it actually appears as you know a lot of different ways. Legatum, etc. But also juice juris, which is uh, another word that means law or what is just, right, and fair. Uh, Lex Lages has to do usually with contract, and that's where you create the state. You make an agreement with men that they will have your right to choose about certain things. They will decide good and evil for you. Today in the United States, the Supreme Court decides what is good and evil. Uh, so, the, you know, they're sinning for you. <laughs> they're eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil for you. Uh, every four years or two years, uh, you get to go and vote and you get to decide who's going to decide what is good and evil for you. <laughs> and you call that freedom because you get to make a decision as to who's going to decide for you. You used to have the power to decide for yourself. Uh, at least as a people, you were probably born in bondage, so you don't, you never have really had that chance to decide, except in a limited fashion. They'll get to, you get to decide what to have for breakfast, you know, that kind of thing, you know, Fruit Loops or uh, Captain Crunch. Um, you uh, you don't get to make a lot of decisions that are really important to liberty. Somebody else will make those. How much you're going to donate to the leaders which you have chosen for yourself. You don't get to decide that. They'll tell you how much to donate. Because they're going to force an offering. Which was foolishness to Samuel. But evidently you think it's a good idea. Uh, Because you aren't following what Christ said. You're not looking for the kingdom of God. You've already got the kingdom of France. And the kingdom of Canada. And the kingdom of the United States. God didn't put those governments there. He allowed you to put those governments there to punish you because he knew that they would take and take and take and take and then you would eventually cry out. But he probably wouldn't hear you. And that's what he says. I'm I'm not going to hear you in that day when you cry out. But he could start to hear you if you repent and turn around and start seeking the straight way seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But you haven't been doing that, so you're in a lot of trouble. But back to the word nomos, which is translated law, they talk about the law being done away with, and they talk about 
you know, fulfilling the law and Christ is fulfilling them. And all the law hinges on two commandments, uh, which is, you know, to love one another as I've loved you and to love God with all your heart, mind and soul. Well, the reality is that, you know, even if you go to the Ten Commandments, you can find every one of the Ten Commandments in the Ma'arats of Egypt. This idea of thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, were around a long time before anybody wrote the Ten Commandments uh, on stone at Mount Sinai. And so, uh, it it's a great synopsis. Although it's misunderstood, especially the first three commandments uh, are terribly, terribly misunderstood. Fourth commandment, not much different. Um, and of course, now people number them differently. So sometimes you've got the ninth and tenth seeming a little redundant because there's actually another commandment in there. But basically, there, you know, if you read the text, it it covers the ground of these basic things: thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal. You know, the Sabbath is really about going into debt. You work, then you earn it. You don't borrow against the future. All nations are borrowing against the future now and cursing their children with debt. And, of course, we were told that such practices would be common to us uh, and we would curse our children through our covetous practices because everybody wants the benefits now. And they're not keepers of the Sabbath. I don't care how many moons you count or how many days you count or whether you worship on Saturday or Sunday. Your nations are in debt and you're not keeping the Sabbath. Have other gods before you? Well, we'll talk more about that. I'm going through 25 uh, items that somebody thinks are contradictions of Paul where he contradicts Christ. And uh, I'm going to show you that Paul doesn't actually contradict Christ, but you don't understand what Paul is saying. And one of the reasons why is because you don't understand how he uses the word nomos, which means law. So the Ten Commandments are there. They've been there all along. They were there from the beginning. It's a part of the law of nature that if you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. If you kill others, you will be killed. If you take a bite out of one another, you will be devoured. This is the same principles of as you judge, so shall ye be judged. You know, if you don't forgive others, neither will you be forgiven. Same principle. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Same principle. It's built in to the law. You can't get away from it. That's just the way it is. (laughs) And the Ten Commandments are trying to show you that. Now, legal statutes that say that you have to do this and you have to do that and you have to pay this and you have to file this and you have to... Those are all made up by men. But you may have to do them because you've been coveting your neighbor's goods. And you've become merchandise, which Peter warned you about. And Proverbs warns you about, if you sit and eat with a ruler, put a knife to your throat if you be a man of appetite. Same thing Peter's talking about in a more abstract sort of way. You know, to put that knife to your throat. He doesn't actually want you to put a knife to your throat. He wants you to be careful of what you're (laughs) receiving from a ruler, an archaic, someone who can exercise authority. Because you're going to go under his authority when you sit at his table. It's not rocket science. Come on. Pay attention. So the Ten Commandments are not done away with. They've always been here. You just haven't always 
itemized them as ten. But, which I could go into for a long time and have on other shows. But anyway, we want to get to Mr. Burke's deal. So, the law that was done away with, as far as Paul was concerned, was this letter of the law, uh, false interpretation by the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees didn't understand the double meaning of Hebrew words when it was inconvenient. <laughs> They did understand it from time to time. But when it was inconvenient to what they really wanted, because they wanted to decide what was good and evil for you. So they focus on things like, oh, Sabbath, can't walk very many steps, and, you know, all these little rules and stipulations. And and Paul says, no, that's not it. And I just recently talked to you about circumcision in our study on Tuesday. Um Circumcision of the heart is what they talk about in the New Testament, right? Not circumcision of the flesh. That's what's important, and that's one of the contradictions of Paul. Except for the fact that in the Old Testament, in several places, they're talking about circumcision of the heart. Paul didn't invent that. That's always what it's always been, because circumcision is not about flesh and blood, it's about heart and mind issues. <laughs> so, so anyway, you got to get out of your narcissistic approach to the Bible. You can't, flesh and blood does not reveal this. It's the spirit that reveals. So how do you draw near the spirit? Well, one way is sacrifice. And the first thing we need to sacrifice on your personal altar is your ego. <laughs> You have to become humble of heart. And one of the ways you can tell that you're not, and we'll do a whole show on this, narcissism, that you're not humble of heart, is you feel attacked when somebody criticizes you. You know, oh, I'm offended. I mean, we have created a nation of narcissists that you think you're entitled uh, because of whatever. You know, let me get a million reasons why you think you're entitled. You know, I'm not entitled. You know, I'm a humble servant of Christ. And that's what I want to be. I'm not even going to say that I am. I'm I'm striving to be. Because, you know, I, I am arrogant at times. But, you know, I'm not I'm not all moody. Uh, I'm not... Uh, I, I can take criticism. I welcome it. This is how I found out what I know today. Is I was willing to be criticized. We had a group, the Yahoo groups. We still have the group. They're very inactive... That we could activate them up. I mean, anybody can join them right now. We've got them listed, how to join them. Uh, 18,000 emails over years of time of me presenting what I was seeing, what God was revealing to me, and sharing it with people, and, the, and receiving their criticism, and listening to what they had to say, and laying it out, and giving the books away for free. Read the book. Find out where it's wrong. Come back. Tell me. Let me know. I'm willing to hear that. I'm wanting to hear that. I'm waiting to hear that. <laughs> and, and that's good. Because iron sharpens iron. I'm willing to hear what you have to say. Unfortunately, a lot of the people that come aren't willing to hear what I have to say back. But it has written five books, six, seven books on the way. But um, you have to have to be willing to hear 
where you're wrong. And so anyway, now we're going to talk about Mr. Burke. We got a little over an hour to look at his material. And, this is, and actually, I thought it was going to take a lot longer to go through his material, but uh, I don't think it really will. <laughs> One of the things, he has a thing, human rights versus legal rights. Why the church must separate from the state. That's uh, one of his books. It's available on Amazon. I'm not recommending these books. I don't want you to go out and say buy them. It's up to you. But uh, in this, he talks about human rights versus legal rights. Is about the state usurping authority it was never intended to have. And in the process of creating costs and inconvenience that have plagued us all ever since. For one thing, the state has not usurped authority. Now, there was some usurpation by the king back in the American Revolution. This guy's from Canada. Uh, for the most part, I guess he did live in the UK for a while, too. But uh, the king of Great Britain was usurping authority already relinquished in the United States in America. Well, there was no United States at that time. And uh, and people stood against that usurpation. Most legal systems are not usurping rights. They actually have those rights. They have the right to tell you what to do. And they have the right to regulate you. And it's because your parents have cursed you with bondage. They have bought into Egypt to get benefits, social security. And now you're born in as they became merchandise. So the kingdom of heaven is from generation to generation. And being merchandise is from generation to generation. Now, there's a way back. And that's what we're going to be showing you. But you have to actually walk that way. You have to turn around and walk that way. You're you're over there at the pig farmer's property. And you got to do what the pig farmer tells you to do. Because you're a prodigal son. And your parents were prodigal sons and daughters. And they've gone away. And we were told that they would do this. They would be, they would believe a lie and go under a strong delusion that they're free when they're not really free. So that's where everybody's at. So this guy has this theory about human rights, uh, are actually rights which exist, I'm quoting him, because it is logically incoherent to deprive anyone of them. The right to life is a human right. Now, he's a little bit misidentifying the word human rights there. The right to life was listed as a natural right. And nature and nature's God were involved in the creation of natural rights. You know, the God of nature, which is the God of creation, created natural rights. He's using this term human rights, and he's really using it out of context. He does this a number of times, and I, I don't want to fault him for it. But he says himself, quoting him again, My use of terms is defined... By internal coherence of the theory, I make no apologies if at times their usage diverges from conventional or idiosyncratic uh, preferences. Well, you know, in other words, I'm making up my own definitions, (laughs) which I understand the need for that. And Paul did. You know, Paul the Apostle he invented all kinds of Greek words we find in the Greek texts of Paul's letters, which we find nowhere else in any other Greek literature. And we got an abundance of other Greek literature. He, and it was often when he was describing the activities of Christians, because of the fact that there was no word. 
words in the Greek language to describe those activities of Christians because this was a unique form of government. Christians were free souls under God and they had a right to do this. And when they were persecuted, that was an usurpation. But most people don't even know why they were persecuted. So I understand that, and I do this all the time. I use words and I redefine them and I show why I redefine them from what people commonly think. But that definition is often in a more original definition. It's not, I'm not making it up myself. I show you. Like the word religion. Religion today is defined what you think about a supreme being. But 200 years ago, religion was defined as the pious performance of a duty to God and your fellow man. So so now religion is what you think. It used to be the fulfillment of a duty. That's a big change. I didn't change it. I'm showing you what it used to be. Even in the Greek text, the word is threskia. Threskia is clearly not what you think, but what you do. Jesus said, not what you say, but what you do. So, yeah, I will use words and I will define them based on what they meant at the time the scripture was written. And so, and I will show you why in footnotes. I'm not just making this stuff up. I'll show you where I got this and why we need to go back to using that definition. At the same time, we realize everybody else, when they say religion, they think what you think about God is religion. (laughs) So anyway, I understand that dilemma. But the fact is, human rights and natural rights are not the same thing. And uh, he's misidentifying. He's using the word human rights. And I understand why he's using it. But it's really not appropriate. But it's what he's decided to do. So we'll we'll go with that into the discussion of what he is doing. Just to give you some of the, you know, examination and comparison of the, the idea of human rights and legal rights, which he is a big one for uh, examining it. But he doesn't see this. And this is just easy found definition. The simplest terms, the difference between human rights and civil rights, which are legal rights, is why you have them. Human rights arise simply by being a human being. Civil rights, on the other hand, arise only by virtue of legal grant to that right, such as the rights imparted on American citizens by the U.S. Constitution. Now, that that right there, now that's a quote, not from him. It's a quote from Google. Well, the fact is, rights, the Constitution did not grant citizens rights. <laughs> but, uh, it, it, so, it was creating rights for government. It was actually creating privileges for government. It was not creating rights for the citizen. Now, since the Constitution was created, and you can go to our article on citizens, which is linked where I'm reading this, which is on our article about human rights, and uh, find out that there are two different kinds of rights, even within a government. Those bestowed by the 14th Amendment and subsequent acts, and those that you naturally have as an inhabitant, not a human, an inhabitant. I have an old article written by Randy Lee about human beings. Fascinating little uh, 
dissertation on what human beings, if you looked it up in an old law dictionary, it would it would give you not a definition, but it would say sea monster, S-E-E monster, because human beings were monsters. They were they were the animal nature human being. It was not the sons of Adam. It was the ones who were living by an animal nature uh, from the humus of the earth rather than from the Spirit of God. So that was the original distinction, but now everybody wants to be a human being. But anyway, human rights are distinct from civil rights, which are freedoms established by the law of a particular state and applied by that state in its own jurisdiction. Human rights laws have been defined by international conventions, by treaties, by organizations, particularly the United Nations. So when you're using human rights, you're going to be attached to that. And we have the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which is the official document of the uh, of the United Nations. Uh, so, and that's on our article on human rights at preparing you. But natural rights, which are supposed to be uh, supposed to come from God, are defined by natural law, are not the same as human rights. Although both natural rights and human rights are universal, there are fundamental differences between the two. First of all, natural inalienable rights do not come from government, either the United Nations or local government. Governments only secure these rights, that is, they create the political condition that allow one to exercise them. So, he really should be using the word natural rights, but that's he has chosen not to, so we'll, we'll live with that. But I just wanted you guys to understand the, the distinction before we get into his what he calls his anarchist algorithm. Uh, the anarchist dilemma is how much risk can we accept as we remove controls from a population in which there are always a sizable number of people willing to exploit power vacuums. The anarchist uh, algorithm is a summary of the steps by which we can uh, th- they can be... He has a lot of typos in this. They can be done in a non-risk-forming manner. Well, we're going to get into these, and it won't take very long, and we get into some very risky stuff. But really what we're going to want to do is take a look at how to get back to what the Bible is actually telling you, which most of you would not be aware of at all by going to your local church, because your local minister doesn't know these. Because Even though we we offer it to you for free, with hundreds and hundreds of footnotes. Lots of people read them. Some are confused by them because they are not willing to see things anew. But some people reject them in their own closet without discussing it. Because we can show you most of the... I've been doing this for decades now. Where you think I'm in error, bring it up. Join the network. Bring it up. Show me where you think that error is. And I'll show you why it's probably not in error. Now, you might come up with something new. But after, you know, almost 50 years, I don't think you're going to tell me something I haven't already looked at. <laughs> so, anyway, but you might. And I'm willing to listen. So give it a shot. But if you argue against us and I'm not there and you think you won the argument, think again. Because... <laughs> 
Yeah, everybody can win an argument when they're by themselves. <laughs> it's guaranteed you're going to be a winner if you're only going to be arguing by yourself. So anyway, his first thing he says is form or utilize a social network. Great idea. Great idea. <laughs> that is totally biblical. A network. You don't find the word network in the Bible, but you see it described over and over again. It's tens, hundreds, and thousands. Great idea. We'll go into number two and three when we come back to Keys of the Kingdom. So don't miss it. Welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. We're talking about uh, this plan uh, put forth by Robert Burke. Uh, he's written, I guess, a couple of books. At least one of them is 400 pages. And it's supposed to be a plan that he thinks is biblical. And we went over the first one, which is to form or utilize a social network, which is very biblical because that's how the kingdom of God, Israel, the children of Israel organized themselves in a network of tens, hundreds, and thousands. Ten families. Family was a corporate unit that was created by God. One man, one woman, acting as one flesh. That's what a corporation is. Two or more people gathered together for a particular purpose as if they were one person. That's a family. And they gathered together in a network, in a social network that had a particular purpose, uh, as if uh, they were not one person, but one nation. And uh, that, because the one person is the family, but the nation is that gathering of families in what is called in the Old Testament a free assembly. Ten families got together in a free assembly, and they picked a minister who was of a class that we call Levites. And the Levites had certain restrictions, and I'm going to get to that later. But they picked a guy from the Levites to be their minister. And he got together with nine other Levites. And now those ten families were connected as a hundred families through this Levite and his congregation of Levites, which we'll call a, an order, a religious order, because there was a religious purpose to the Levites. It wasn't the only purpose. But there was a religious purpose. They were to serve the tabernacles of the congregation. The tabernacle of the congregation. I use plural or singular. It doesn't really matter. Because it's the tents of the congregation. Which is the individual tents. And they go through a great deal. Where they set up a single tabernacle. And then they set up. They talk about setting up all these other tents. Around about the tabernacle. In a pattern. Now, they didn't always set them up in that exact pattern, physically, but spiritually, because of that double entendre, that double meaning, that those tents were the homes, the families of the congregations of a nation 
were gathered around this other tabernacle, which was a, just a physical tent, but also representing a spiritual idea. And they set up altars, altars of stone, unhewn stone. Now you think, physical stones, we pile them up, they all fit together perfectly without hewing them, and you have this altar. That's the physical representation of a spiritual concept. Because the same exact word in Hebrew for a gathering of stones is the same exact word in Hebrew for a gathering of friends. Double meaning. So, you give to the stone of your choice. He's gathered together in an altar of God, which you can call a religious order. And they receive those offerings. Each stone receives an offering from those they serve, the tents they serve. They receive that and they hold it in common. But because they cannot exercise authority one over the other, whatever each individual stone has is only shared as they choose to share what they have received. Yet they hold it in common. So if you killed one of those Levites, the other nine Levites in that order would have the power to grant what was given to the one to the next Levite that congregation chooses. This is a pattern of how to govern yourselves as a free nation. Because everything you give to the Levite is freely given according to his service. Think of a government where all your public servants only get paid if you think they're doing a good job. If you don't think they're doing a good job, they don't get no pay. (laughs) They don't receive anything. And then if we go into the restrictions of the Levites, which you can go into on on our articles, you'll see that they cannot really accumulate wealth as a personal estate. They There's a restriction to keep them from accumulating wealth as a personal estate. Now, this is part of that corruption I mentioned in the first show where the Levites took off those restrictions. Today, they've taken off those restrictions amongst Jews. They certainly have taken off those restrictions that Christ put on his called out. They've taken them off of your pastors. Again, whenever I go to think of all these pastors that I know of that do this, I can't. I remember their names. So I guess they will remain nameless. You can figure out who they are. You know, those rich guys with million dollar mansions and jets and all those things. And along with a lot of the lesser ones like them that are preaching the same false gospel. They've taken off those restrictions that Christ put on. And when, even though I just heard a brilliant scholar refer to Jesus as being poor. A biblical scholar refers to Jesus as being poor. While in the text, which he verifies is an actual authentic text of Paul, it says, though he was rich, he made himself poor. (laughs) And of course, we know that his uncle was one of the richest men in the Roman Empire. That's just historical information. So, And we know that amongst the Jews, if you had a rich uncle, he, it would be absolutely a shameful thing if you were living in poverty 
and he was rich. He would share his wealth with the rest of his family because that was that's the way of the Jews. They still is the way of the Jews. Uh, unless, of course, you're some sort of black sheep in the family and you, you know, you're out there being a drug addict or something, they may cut you off. So, anyway, Jesus actually came from an extremely wealthy family. He was a very rich man as a child, but he gave up his wealth when he was baptized by John and he began this ministry as to eventually become both priest and king. We've talked about that many times and we can explain that in great detail with lots of footnotes. But anyway, the first item of Mr. Burke is form or utilize this social network. That's what Israel did. That's what the early church did. The the feasts in which you did most of that organizing of that social network were tabernacles, and, which is a feast of tents, feast of booths, and uh, and Pentecost. Because that's where you had your big physical gathering of people. Uh, one in the fall, one in the spring, to make sure that your network was organized from the bottom up. He goes on to say that this group of friends, he even calls it group of friends, a church, a club, or other organizations, even a business. To start, one only needs a group of persons. Bad choice of words. You don't want to use the word person there. But you can do it with persons. But it's best to do it with individuals. But it's hard to find an individual anymore. Most people don't know what I'm talking about. Persons are members of something else already. (laughs) That's what a person is. It's already a member. But you can start with that. And that's fine. And this is what we show you. But you And your church people should be friends. But it's not really a club. Now you can apply the same principles to a club or other organization, or even to a business, or to a cooperative, etc. But the fundamental issue, if you're going to be biblical, is you need to do this with the church. When it says, preach the kingdom to every creature, that word creature actually means institution. So yes, the same principles would apply in businesses and clubs, etc. You could have a shooting club. You would apply the same principles there. You could have a, a corporate business. You could apply the same principles there. But a corporate business, shooting club, buying club, any of these kinds of things. Buying clubs are really useful for saving money because you all get together and you can buy in bulk and then redistribute amongst yourselves. Make no profit in the club And so, therefore, there's no taxes or anything. And that could be an LLC or all kinds of things. And and if you're a person already, all those things make sense. And But the idea is the principles of the church, which is to love your neighbor. You're doing this to help him out, to make him more successful. But you need the church if you're going to be biblical. You need the church because you are persons already. And the church is not to be like your churches down on the corner to make you feel good and tickle your ears. But they are to be there to help you in the practice of pure religion, unspotted by the world. The only place in the Bible where it talks about religion in a good sense is that phrase from James. So anyway, if you don't know what I mean, stick around and we'll explain that. We already do in videos and audios and and, and web pages. Okay, 
Second item, register the organization if required in your location. Best form is as a not-for-profit charitable institution. Be wrong. Uh, the best form is the church. Churches are not required to register in Australia, in the United States, in Canada, if they're organized properly, uh, according to Christ. But anyway, we'll have to get into that in another place, so we'll never get to all these things. But the church was established by Christ. It's The church in the wilderness was established by Moses. The altars set up by Abraham were actually the same types of organizations. And they brought people together so that overnight Abraham could create a militia to fight off an invading army and free his nephew and along with all the other people of Sodom. And this was a form of government. The altars of Abraham were a form of government. There were altars of stone and altars of clay. And the altars of clay are free assemblies. The altars of stone are these religious orders of friends who have a particular purpose, not to sit off in some monastery mumbling prayers over and over again, but to actually provide a public service, a liturgy. That's what liturgy means, is public service, to the people, serving the individual tents of each family in faith, hope, and charity under the perfect law of liberty with not taxes, but freely given offerings which you can call tithe. And why tithes? Because there are ten families in every congregation. So, whatever you give, that's your tithe. That's one-tenth of what he's going to get. Not percentage-wise, but of that particular family. And all this is verifiable once you understand how to read Hebrew. Once you understand the codex of Hebrew. The double meaning of words and the meaning of each letter will guide you. But ultimately, in order for you to receive that and accept that, you have to have the Holy Spirit writing upon your heart and your mind. So, if you are going to be biblical, you need the church. You need the principles upon which the church was founded, both in the wilderness and by Jesus Christ. Because they were Moses and Jesus were in agreement. The Pharisees were not in agreement because they had already twisted Moses twisted his meanings and his teachings to mean something other than what they meant. Okay, number A, under number two, is define the purpose of the organization. Well, you can do that if you're starting a club or a business or a cooperative, but if you're starting a church, Christ has already defined the purpose. And what you need to do is figure out what the heck Christ was talking about. Okay, now, number three, and this is where we start going down the wrong path towards destruction. And I'll show you why. And you, most of you will be shocked, if you haven't heard us already, why this is really bad. The first reason why is it will get you arrested and put into jail in most every country of the world. <laughs> he needs to run this by a good lawyer. And even uh, He's in Canada, but I'm sure that he will find this is true in Canada. Create a unit of exchange or currency. This can take any one of several forms, uh, which he talks about vouchers uh, as a unit uh, that are multiples of one another in the same way as conventional currency is produced. 
Okay. If there's a lot of different codes, you know, like Title 18 of the U.S. Code, Section 486, it talks about uttering coin uh, of gold or silver or other metals uh, can get you put away in jail for a minimum of five years, as well as large fines. Uh, you do not want to be doing this in, in any way, shape, or form. Uh, I know guys from years ago uh, doing federal time because they were creating these exchanges. Uh, he goes on in on A under that heading. The organization is registered as a corporation that is as a registered charity. Each participant obtains one common share. This is a voting share. Well, uh, you're you're over into a realm that is highly regulated by the state, and uh, it is simply not what you want. He goes on. Uh, he kind of redundantly says, "Define the organization's purpose." I thought we already did that up there. Define the purpose of the organization under A of one, and so now number four is define the organization purpose. So that there's a certain redundancy in what he's doing, but that allows us to immediately jump down to number five. Capitalize the exchange. Capitalization is a, acquiring assets needed by the exchange to exercise its function consistent with its business plan. That's true in a corporation, uh, but that wouldn't be true if you just organized a church. <laughs> So, capitalization is done through donations, he says. Each donation, well, whatever is not, not a charitable institution, then there is no donation. Each, they're, they're actually investments. Each donation, because you're receiving a stock share, so it's an investment. Each donation receives a charitable receipt equal to the value donated. These receipts can be used to obtain a tax refund or cashed in with an organization of preferred shares, uh, whichever currency system is used. Again, you're already in the realm of extreme danger because you're creating a currency. And, you know, almost every country in the world has a Federal Reserve now, what we would call a Federal Reserve, a central bank. Uh, there were a few holdouts, uh, Iran, uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, Panama, East Timor, uh, these are all holdouts and didn't have these. East Timor was invaded by U.S. military arms in the hands of Indonesians and was destroyed, virtually destroyed, although the gold fields are up and running and as long as a lot of the other mineral fields are up and running and they're now supposedly a republic, but uh, they've closed down most of the rape camps and all that stuff, although they're still killing rebels in the, in the hills from time to time. But that was done by U.S. paid tax paid for military arms offloaded onto ships. I've seen this actually take place. Offloaded onto ships of the Indonesian government and who immediately went to East Timor and invaded it, murdering thousands upon thousands of people. And why in the world was Jimmy Carter giving arms to the government with the worst human rights record in the world at that time? And it was to secure multi-million dollar mines in East Timor, a real rich country. One of the few countries operating in the black uh, and absolutely devastated. And now has made it subject to this entire international world system of banking. 
and uh, they're just sucking the life out of that country. Uh, they're better off than they were when they were invaded today, <laughs> higher standard of living, but they have all gone into this one world government system. Iraq, Libya, uh, they were they were going to create their own monetary exchange in Africa. And that's what this guy's doing, is creating this monetary exchange. Libya, at least, was using gold as uh, the common denominator. But they were issuing uh, some form of exchange rate uh, currency. And gold it was going to be based on the golden denarii. And, of course, he had to be taken out immediately. So... Uh, this is this highly risky, not biblical. Now, why is it not biblical? And that's what we're going to get into here, exactly why this is not biblical. But I'm going to hit a few other things he talks about. Set up. It is the principle of an exchange that all work is paid for and all services are paid for. Of course, he's paying for it with exchange, a script exchange which somebody is printing up. And the wealth is actually going on deposit somewhere else. Of course, today that wealth is in the form of Federal Reserve notes, which have no value. But So you have this kind of mixed system. And what he's proposing is illegal in most every country and highly frowned upon internationally. He says no one works for free. Absolutely, that would be the case. That's a good idea. Today, people work for free all the time. If you, my dad, uh, I asked him who he worked for. All heard this story. You've listened and he really regular. I, when I was a small boy, I said, who do you work for? And he says, until July 1st, I work for the government. After that, I work for myself. So all up till July 1st, he worked for free. Because <laughs> he wasn't going to take that money home. He was going to go to the government. You could say the same thing. Until noon, I work for the government. Afternoon, I work for Myself. In other words, he was in an income tax situation where half of, he was 50% income tax, half everything he made went to the government. So, he understood that. And this is way back in the 60s, which to some of you is like ancient history. <laughs> but I can remember it. Because he was living in the bondage of Egypt, except he didn't have a 20% ceiling limit. So he was up in the 50%. Heck, in France, he can pay 70, 80, 90% in some of these other socialist nations. But anyway, uh, the point is, is that you're working for free for the first few hours of work because everything you produce is going off to the government. And that's just where you're at. I'm not saying it's bad or good. It, it is good that you be under tribute because you've been slothful in the ways of God. Now, this guy thinks he's teaching you the ways of God and I will show you that he is absolutely, except for a few points, he's absolutely going against Scripture. And we're going to get to that, I think, in item 7. But item 6 is uh, the setup, the exchange. He talks about uh, established terms of a living wage. Who's establishing all this? This is a democratic vote where 51% of the people are taking away the rights of the other 49. You know, 51 think that it should be $15. Well, $15 an hour for what? A guy who's a doctor or a dentist, he's going to get $15 an hour. And a guy who just dig post holes is going to get $15 an hour. And a guy who is a flapjack cook is going to get $15 an hour. But... 
a um, a chef is only going to get fifteen dollars an hour, and he can cook everything. He can actually make up things. Maybe a cheese engineer. No, there's no accountability for a free market here. And without a free market, where's the motivation to better your family? No, this is missing all kinds of major elements in a viable economy. Now, I'm sure he's going to say in the other 400 pages of his book that he deals with all that. But the reality is, who is making the decision that $15 an hour is a living wage? And the fact is, in some parts of the world, it won't be. <laughs> so, anyway, in some parts, you'll be living like a king. But is it a democracy? Is it a board that decides? Who's deciding all these things? And the fact is, all these powers to decide, these right to decide, should be in the hands of the individual. He decides how much he's willing to work for. If he doesn't like what somebody's offering, he goes somewhere else. You know, in our local valley here, uh, or in this local Lake County, there, there's a company that's just dying for employees. They don't pay real high. You can get up to $20, $25 an hour. but uh, And you can get lots of overtime usually. But uh, the same job somewhere else might pay you a lot more. But rent here is a lot cheaper. Living here is cheaper in many ways. Taxes are less here. So, you know, if somebody wants one of those jobs, just get a hold of me. I'll tell you who to see. And you can start a community. But you're going to be working for other people. But the church should be the center of your community in the pious performance of your duty to God and your fellow man. That will take you closer to freedom and liberty than almost anything else. Your churches today are not doing that. They're not practicing pure religion. As a matter of fact, they're advocating the religion of the Pharisees. And we'll talk about that in another place. A, under this, anyone can set up an exchange. Actually, that is a highly regulated idea. And like I say, I know many people that are doing and have done federal time for trying to do that. Especially if by any way you're circumventing taxes. Which, of course, that will be one of the big attractions, whether that's your intent or not. Other people will do it for that purpose. And what I'm trying to do is get you to look for the keys of the kingdom. He says the key to the functionality of an exchange is the currency system. If the setup is by, uh, based on a charitable organization model. Preferred shares can be issued in units that are multiples of each other. Or vouchers can be used as various types of credit vehicles. He goes on promotion. Each new member can be given a credit balance to start. Given by whom? Somebody has to create this credit balance to, to start. And there is no risk of this no risk just because you say there's no risk these new guys get this voucher they spend it they're gone if you do that very often you're going to be seeing inflation 50 units of currency would be possible credit to initiate exchange well i don't know how you come to that unless you've already decided what the value of this currency is etc but anyway um growth as a member uh, he talks about as members join the group grows. Well, that could be. Uh, it's interesting that in Israel it wasn't as people join. It was as people were born. <laughs> the birth of every child made the money in your pocket more valuable. 
because there would be greater demand on the money in your pocket, and so the money in your pocket would therefore become more valuable to the community. Today, between the beginning of this program and now, the money in your pocket has lost value. (laughs) It's going down. And uh, it's because the money in your pocket, and here's a biblical reference, are not just weights and measures. But in this next half, we're going to get to the really bad part and the really good thing you could do that would make the difference. We'll be right back. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. We're almost done with the look at this uh, material that he presents. And uh, really what I want to show you is the alternative solution that makes the the difference. Uh, one thing he uses the term social costs in economics may be distinguished from private costs. Okay, social cost is also considered to be the private costs plus externalities, rational choices theory often, uh, rational choice theory often assumes that individuals consider only the costs they themselves bear when making decisions, not the costs that may be borne by others. So the reality is, is that his whole system is filled with social costs, but somehow or other he thinks there is no social cost. And it's because of the fact that he is placing value on value. He's Somebody is. Somebody in his organization is determining values of things. And there is no free market because these values are being created by what you're doing. He talks about administration. Both groups have a chairperson uh, who administers at meetings As a number of groups grow, the chair of these groups may appoint a member to chair a committee of chairpersons. So, what exactly are these chairpersons doing? Uh, They're supposed to be just administering. Administering what? Uh, This uh, macroeconomics that he's creating? Um, what, what, What exactly are all these duties? Now, of course, he's going to tell me that this is all explained in his 400-page book, but it really is irrelevant uh, because of the fact that he has already strayed from local law in Canada, United States, Australia, France, all these different countries. They don't allow you to create your own currency. Secondary, uh, he says that it eliminates this social cost. This form of organization is capable of eliminating all social costs. Social costs are what? Welfare? Uh, nobody works for free, so I guess there is no welfare. You're going to depend upon charity. If somebody falls and hurts themselves and can't work, and they're going to starve, and their children are going to starve, uh, they get sick, they get disease, who's taking care of them? Is, is your corporation taking care of them? Uh, he talks about debt. 
exchanges uses private currency, again, illegal, only where payment must be made to Babylon will units of national currency be needed. Well, are all these people no longer having to pay income tax because they're not actually making money? They're only receiving their private currency? That is a criminal act of avoiding tribute by saying, well, we didn't make any of your money. We're just exchanging amongst our little private selves. Okay, no property tax? So all your property has been removed from the tax rolls under this scheme? No, that's not true. So you're going to have to pay those. Sales tax, if you're in a state that has sales tax, uh, you making exchanges amongst yourselves, but you're not paying any sales tax. You're making income, but you say it's not income because it's in this private currency. So you don't know, you're not filling out a 1040 form in the United States or whatever form you have to fill out in Canada. You're going to get these people in lots and lots of trouble because these people are a surety for the debt of Canada. Every child born in Canada, registered in Canada, is a surety for the debt of Canada. And therefore, when they work, they must pay a share of what they produce to Canada to cover the cost of that debt that was created by their parents who cursed them with this debt. But that's just where you're at. You're in the bondage of Egypt. You cannot create a club that takes you out of the bondage of Egypt. You have to change your ways. He talks about it eliminating unemployment. He talks about put this whole system exchange on an island with about a thousand persons in a closed economy is what he's talking about. Anyway, uh, he goes uh, on to talk about in a closed economy, it does not benefit anyone to live off the largesse of others. Because you're in this closed economy. Who in history tried to create such an exchange as he's talking about that ended in absolute, utter destruction of that system and was absolutely opposed by God by in this attempt to create a closed economy? It was Israel. Israel tried to create an exchange, like he's talking about, with a closed economy, with administrators, they call them priests, by the way, to administrate this system, this closed economy. When did they do this? Are you familiar with when they did this? And how they did this? And why they did this? (laughs) Well, it was called the golden calf. The golden calf. Everybody took their gold, not the silver. Evidently, they were still going to be allowed to use some silver. You're in your nation. You're not allowed to use silver. <laughs> Actually, you can have some silver, but you only have legal title to it, which is another whole discussion. You don't have lawful title to the silver because you're you're bound in a legal system, in a civil society. You cannot unbind yourself by creating a club or a corporation. All those things are bound within that system. You're surety for debt. You have to deal with this. You have to admit it. You have to see that we've gone the wrong way in order and go back by returning, by reversing what we did to get here. So you have to understand what you did to get here. It was through covetous practices 
that you were made merchandise. So it's through the reverse of a covetous practice, which is charitable practices, that you will be drawn back. If you want God to hear you in your hour of need, you have to go back to a system of charity, which is what the church is, or was supposed to be. It is supposed to supplant the need to go to the benefactors to exercise authority. We are to be the benefactors who don't exercise authority. So if you want out of Babylon, you have to stop being selfish, start admitting where you went wrong, stop being slothful, start practicing pure religion, the pious performance of your duty to God and your fellow man through a network that we call the church in general. The tens, hundreds, and thousands. That's what you have to do. See, what they did is they broke off the gold. Now, gold is normally, you know, that's portable land. That's portable dirt. Gold is portable dirt because you can carry an ounce of gold and that's worth a whole lot of compost, a whole lot of labor, a whole lot of everything because it's it's very compact. It took a lot of labor to produce it. And it has it doesn't rust. It doesn't decay, you know. I mean, it it's pretty solid. And that's what you're supposed to have is just weights and measures. Not coins. Just weights and measures in your purse. But they broke off their just weights and measures, their gold. And they gave it to the administrators, their chairperson. <laughs> and they put it into a golden calf so everybody could see it. There was a little oversight you knew what was there. In his exchange, all this stuff you're giving into the exchange, who's making sure that somebody isn't pilfering it out the back door? Who's watching the the money that you have that you're going to pay Babylon with? You know, you got to have oversight. How's that? I suppose in his 400 pages, he's got that. But the point is what you're doing is you're creating a walled-in camp. This is what they did. This is the first place you see in the Bible where they talk about gates of the camp is in in this section where it talks about Moses standing in the gates of the camp. Exodus 32, 26. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, who is on the Lord's side? And he's calling them out of this closed community that they've created. Because when they turned in their gold, so one guy's turning in 10 ounces of gold, another guy's turning in a half ounce of gold. So, is that fair? I mean, they're turning in their gold. Well, they're getting something back. Egypt did this. They used little clay scarabs. Uh, Rome did this. Tesseras. And iron coin. Uh, we do this. They give you Federal Reserve notes. When you had to turn in your gold back in the 1930s, and um, because they outlawed it with HJR 192, but now they've they've repealed HJR 192, but you only have legal titles, so they can still come and confiscate it along with your guns and everything else, because you're in the bondage of Egypt. You want to get out, you have to turn around and create a truly free society, which the Bible's telling you how to do. Your churches aren't doing it. But it's telling you how the church is... The early Christians did it. And that's why we write about the early Christians. And why we show you what the early Christians were doing. Why they were being persecuted. 
Their persecution was an usurpation. When they come to arrest the people that is doing this exchange, that will not be usurpation. That will be protecting their assets, uh, which are all the people you're trying to get to join your exchange so that they don't have to pay taxes. Because we didn't make any money. We're just exchanging our own currency in our club here, in our government-controlled corporation. No, that isn't what it is. He is absolutely right in his uh, first statements, way back up there, when he says that we should, uh, I say absolutely right, absolutely right, minus a few clauses in the sentence, form a social network. And they should be a group of friends. That would be the people in congregation. You're just friends in a free assembly. You have the right to freely assemble. And the church should be also friends that are interested in your welfare, your well-being. They want to strengthen you. They want to enrich you. They want to help you. They want to protect you. He actually says way down in number... Oh, it's D under section 11. Eliminate the risk. He says, insurance exists because we do not trust one another. Well, yes and no. Uh, insurance exists because bad things happen. And so you you have to create some sort of social insurance to protect. I mean, you could fall off a ladder and you can't work for a month and your kids all starve. But if you're in a network that cares as much about you and your kids as you care about your own kids and their kids, then when you fall off that ladder, people come to your aid. We've had people do that guy in Texas gored by a bull. I, I love that example. Kids ran out and dragged them to safety and and uh, people came and helped them with their business and people have helped pay their bills uh, and also helped them so that they healed quicker and better. And they still want to be there to help them. And uh, and and that's that's kingdom. But it's voluntary. It's all free will choices. It's taking back your responsibilities so that you don't look to the state or don't have to look to the state or don't have to look to the corporations of the state. You're looking to the corporation of God, the Levites, the church, the church in the wilderness who are going to be serving your tent, your family, your needs. That's their purpose. To do that, not to tickle your ears, not to tell you that you've got it all figured out. And that's what I'm doing. I'm not tickling this guy's ears or the people that might listen to him. I'm showing you that the, the kingdom of God is not a closed society. You know, the Essenes did much of this. They did a much experimenting with this. There were Essene communities all over Europe, not just Israel. They'd been around for over 300 years before Christ. During the time when when Rome was moving towards a socialist state, because Rome was originally a republic, the, the army was supported by free will offerings, uh, charity was supported by free will offerings. I mean, that's what the Temple of Janus was. That was, you know, at the time of the census, it wasn't really wasn't a census, but when Augustus, you know, and Joseph and Mary went to Bethlehem and everything, they call it a census. It really wasn't a census. It was a registration with Rome as your uh, parents patria, where Rome was going to be the father of your nation. 
And it was going to bestow on you all kinds of benefits because it was the father of your nation. But, of course, Jesus said, call no man father. Somebody asked me just the other day, did Jesus get registered when they were doing that census? It wasn't really a census again, but it was a registration. It's called a census, but you have to look at the original Greek text and what that word means. It doesn't necessarily mean what it means today. But uh, if you don't want to look at that, the point is, is you know, we in the book Thy Kingdom Come, which is free online, uh, we show you what that was. And they had birth certificates in Rome, and they had birth certificates in Judea, uh, especially for those people who had signed up for their system of Corbin under Herod, which was about 50 years old at the time of Christ. And uh, but it was even older in Rome, because they had the same system in Rome. So anyway, this and you have that system today. It was started by FDR. It's called Social Security Administration. That's the Corbin of Israel, and uh, or of Judea, and it's the Corbin of Rome. It's a system of compelled offerings, and the government takes care of your social welfare. Well, the church is supposed to take care of your social welfare. It is to be the benefactors who don't exercise authority, but operate by faith, hope, and charity, and that perfect law of liberty, so that when you cry out, when somebody asserts against you, God will hear you and intervene, as he did with the Israelites when they cried out, and they were on the shores of the Red Sea, and at the bottom of a box-in canyon, and uh, the armies of the Pharaoh were coming down upon them, God took care of it. Now, you got that kind of faith? Hey, Join our network. <laughs> and you know, and the network is not just the email network. Join a congregation. Start caring about others. Start giving to care about others. And you watch your ministers and make sure they're actually strengthening the poor, not weakening the poor. And they're not pilfering the funds. And don't create a golden calf or a closed-in state or a closed-in camp. because A walled-in camp is what I refer to it as because they had these the gates. And the first thing he did was send the Levites in to go in and out the gates. You can't stop us from going in and out the gates. And then he didn't like the movie shows where the ground opened up and swallowed the calf. He fired up his furnaces and turned the calf to dust and made the people drink the dust, which is colloidal gold, which is another story entirely. But anyway, creating this monetary exchange is not the answer. Is there just weights and measures in the kingdom? Absolutely. But it's not coins. Coins are like when you have a, a silver ounce. You know, a dollar. That's what a silver ounce really is. is a troy ounce is a dollar. It's a weight of measure. A measure of weight. And so you have a silver ounce. Or we'll call it a silver dollar. And you say, this silver dollar... 50 of those, or it used to say 20 of those, is worth a dollar of gold, an ounce of gold. And you stamp them with that value. 20, it says $20 gold an eagle on it. Well, that, that, that $20 piece is not $20, because the dollar is a weight of measure, a measure of weight. It's saying that it's worth 20 silver dollars. <laughs> now they, they say it's worth 50 silver dollars. 
But the point is, and there's a trend there that you'll see why it goes from 20 to 50. But uh, the reality is that's a coin. You don't want coins. You can't create coins. You can't create coins to be used as money. You can create wealth. And you can exchange wealth. But you don't do it by creating an exchange. It has to be a free market. And so, therefore, you have to have only a commodity money in a free market. Uh, the reality is, is you don't live in a free market. You live in the world. And so, in the world, you have to use what the world uses. But if you create this other community, this alternative community, which is what the early Christians were, and as as there was inflation, I mean, a sack of wheat was six denarii at the time of Christ. That's like six dimes, 60 cents for a 30-pound sack of wheat. You see, this guy doesn't know these things. He doesn't, he doesn't understand how economy really works. He doesn't understand history. He doesn't understand what the Bible is really telling you. And we offer it to him for free so that he can fix it. Now, of course, now he's, he may want to take his book off the market but uh, and rewrite that. But, um, you, know, you know, that money spent is money earned. So maybe you can learn from this. But it was worth six denarii for that 30 pounds of wheat. By Diocletian, which is just a few generations later, it was 120,000 denarii for the same sack of wheat at one point. Well, of course, everybody was starving because nobody had 120,000 denarii. But then again, the denarii was no longer silver. They had taken the silver out of the coin. So it had no value except it was like iron. And they actually had uh, clay coins for a while there. They tried that. They had the tesserer, which was like your EBT card. That's how you go get your free bread. One for the free bread, everybody would starve. Well, even the free bread dried up. And that's what you're going to see in your own country. And people were starving to death. But Christians were getting by. Because Christians were going according to the real plan that works. He thinks he has the real plan that works. He thinks he is being scriptural, following the Bible. He is not. He is doing what Aaron did. Was just creating a golden calf, except you don't even get to see the golden calf. See, at least if somebody's sawing off a horn, you know they're stealing. You, you, you now somebody's going to have to monitor where all this valuable stuff is that you're going to pay to Babylon, because somebody could be confiscating, running out the back door with that stuff. Thieves and robbers. He's creating a treasury. Jesus said, thieves and robbers will break in. Moths will eat it up. It will disappear. That's not it. The kingdom of God. The wealth of the nation is in the purse of the people. The people are not bound together because they're in a walled-in camp. They're bound together because they love one another. And they love one another. We know they love one another. They know they love one another because they are in free assemblies, being the social insurance of a community of hard-working, industrious people that occasionally need help. That's the kingdom of God. That's how it works. It requires a little faith because you have no entitlement. You only have the hope that people will be there for you. A hope of salvation. A hope of social security. 
a hope of assistance when you need it. And then we can go into why they picked seven men uh, because it was an international network. Greeks needed help. Greeks were being neglected. So they needed to pick seven men to help Greeks because that was another nation way over there. So how are they going to help them? Well, they needed those seven people. What were those seven people? Is there any organization today that could do the function of those seven people? Yep, there is. And it's available in almost every nation of the world. I'm not going to say every nation, but I mean, I know it's in Switzerland. I know it's in France. I know it's in Canada. I know it's in Australia. I know it's in the United States. I know it's all throughout South America. Actually, it's even in Christmas Valley, over here in the next valley. They have one of these institutions. <laughs> what is it? Well, join the network and we'll explain to you what it is. <laughs> but the reality is is that you do not want to create a monetary exchange. One is it's illegal, illegal in most countries. You don't want to do it so that you don't have to pay taxes and uh, that your 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 corporation or club is going to pay Babylon. And it it is just a really bad, 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 bad idea. Read our article on the Golden Calf. Read our articles on human rights. And uh, join the network and we'll explain this all in greater and greater detail. Till then, peace on your house and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.